the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. Haviv Redigur is a senior political correspondent and writer for the Times of Israel. He has been my guest a few times. He joins me this morning from Israel. I think he might be by the side of the road. Did you have car trouble this morning, Aviv? <laughs> a little bit of car trouble. Everything's well, okay. Uh, was it your fault or was it the other guy's fault? Well, it's always the other guy's fault. What okay. kind of question is that to ask a person? <laughs> now, now, the question, before I get to the question, in California, we have the best drivers in America. And in Boston, there are the worst drivers in America. How are Israelis generally as drivers? I'm going to say something unabashedly racist. Israelis are terrible drivers, all of them, to, a, to the last one, every ethnicity, every religion. If you're in any way related to Israel in any way, you're a bad driver. All right. That, I, I thought as much. I've only been driven in Israel. I've not driven in Israel. Do you have roundabouts in Israel? Because that's what's the problem with New England. That's why Boston's terrible. They have roundabouts. Absolutely, we do. Oh, you see, I do not know. Yeah. Uh, it must have been a 1947 thing right? when you became a state. Someone must have decided to slow the development of the state of Israel down. Haviv, would you summarize for us the Israeli attitude writ large towards the present situation? By, by that, I mean, is it going to get worse before it gets better? Is it going to be a long grind ahead? Is there a deal in the offing that you think will be reached? What is the general Israeli attitude? The general Israeli attitude is very simple. It's reflected in every poll for three months. Nothing really fundamental has changed. The general Israeli attitude is that Hamas has to be removed from Gaza. Hamas is making it extremely difficult to remove it from Gaza, and that is a terrible thing for Gaza. And nevertheless, Hamas will be removed from Gaza. There's a deal for our hostages. There are 136 hostages still in Hamas's hands, including children. And that is who Hamas is and who Hamas will forever be. And that is something that we are willing to trade. Um, some limited slowdown in the fighting, we're limited to trade. We're willing to trade some things that Hamas might want, the survival of its leadership so they can escape, things like that. We're not going to trade Hamas surviving in Gaza in exchange for those hostages. And that's where things have been, and that's where polls have been, and that's where the war effort really has been from day one. Now, this morning, I ran through the headlines in the variety of American papers and in the Israeli papers. Hamas do in Cairo for hostage talks. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu rules out ceasefire, mass prisoner releases. In other words, there's lots of speculation about what's going on. But as far as I can tell, Hamas has demanded a complete end of the war. So there isn't really a negotiation going on. Yeah, that's what it demanded last time as well. In fact, at the very first week of the war, it demanded not starting the war in exchange for hostage release. Uh, it wanted to give us one or two a week um, for years so that we wouldn't start the war to remove it from Gaza. We did. Um, there was a decision made early on back in October 
by the Israeli High Command, uh, led by the Defense Minister, Yoav Gallant, that the only way to get the hostages out is not to play Hamas's game, because Hamas will hold on to them for as long as they're useful. And so what's important is to make them less useful. And you do that by pushing Hamas militarily, pushing them so uh, powerfully and, and, and quickly um, that the only way they survive, the only way they, they get a little bit of respite, a few days of quiet, is by releasing large numbers of hostages. That policy has already been vindicated massively in the last hostage release where we got 90 Israelis and another uh, roughly 40 uh, non-Israelis out for, in exchange for seven days of quiet. Israel is willing to have that again, obviously. They want to charge more this time because some of the hostages are soldiers and some of the hostages, you know, and, and um, Hamas also has to justify the, the sheer devastation it has brought on Gaza to Palestinians, to the Palestinian story. And so their price is very high. Israel will not stop the war. That is not something Israel is going to give. It is something Hamas is starting to demand. Last time it took about a month to get Hamas down off that tree. It might take a month to get them off that tree again. Now, will Israel accept a deal that releases everyone except young men? I don't know. Uh, the, the, one of the dividing lines, um, that one of the decisions that really have to be made is, do you agree to release um, murderers, people who have killed Jews, have killed children? Do you agree to release, who, who are in Israeli prisons, who are part of the Hamas list of people demanded to be released? Um, who do you agree to release? How do you agree to release them? Where do they go? That's all part of the story. Uh, it's extremely unlikely that Hamas will give us all the hostages. Because why Why would the leadership of Hamas, that is now hiding beneath some parts of Khan Yunus or in the southernmost Gazan city of Rafah, why would they release the last insurance they have to survive, the last negotiating um, card they have to survive at the end of the war? So, you know, we're talking about part, some of ours in exchange for some of theirs, and you know, and, and maybe some delay of the fighting in some way. Hamas right now is demanding immense things that are absolutely impossible for Israeli governments politically to, to give them. The Israelis will not accept an end to the war with Hamas in power. And so as long as that's the Hamas demand, there won't be a hostage exchange. Yeah, I really don't believe we're going to see one. But one of the things I do believe between the lines is that Hamas is trying to keep back young Israeli women who are also in the IDF or served in the IDF. And I suspect they don't want to release them because the way that they have been abused. Do you share that suspicion? Uh, well, that's a that's a doozy, right? Um, that is a um, that is a fear uh, shared by the Israeli intelligence services, um, and it is not just Israeli soldiers. Uh, it's not just Israeli female soldiers. Um, it's it's just young Israeli women, including uh, Muslim women. There is a young Bedouin woman, 18 years old, uh, Hamas, we, we, we know she's with Hamas, we don't know where she is, and um, Hamas is not upfront about releasing her. And she's, she's a Bedouin Arab Muslim woman who, when she was taken, was wearing a hijab. And so the fear for these women, the fear for women Hamas isn't eager to release, is that they are in a shape that will that will not make Hamas look good on the international stage, put it that way. Well, I remember when ISIS seized the, uh, was it Haredi? I can't, not Haredi, um, an, an ethnic minority, Hazari. Uh, they seized the Hazari women, made them sex slaves, and then executed the them. The Hazidi, yeah. Yeah, the Hazidi. So is that what we're worried about? Because it's what seems to me to be 
part of the negotiations that's in between the lines as I read the stories? Not, uh, that has not um, been part of this conflict ever in the past. There has not been mass rape, mass sexual violence, not on the Israeli side, not on the Palestinian side. There's been a lot of other terrible things, but there's never been that. And now we have started to see that for the very first time. And so the simple answer I would have given you three months ago is no way. That's not, not, not a chance. It's simply not imaginable. That's not who we are. That's not who they It's just never been. It's never been in our great wars with huge dislocation and, and, and a lot of people that we've never had that. And now we have. So the simple answer is I don't know. I don't know how far Hamas has fallen. I don't know, how, you know, what Palestinian civilian uh, in this particular case of these particular civilians, I put that in, in quotation marks, who kidnapped people and held them in their homes. I don't know how far they will have fallen. So the simple answer is we, we can't know. We can't. Did we know that UNRWA was as corrupt? I mean, as completely infiltrated by Hamas as it's turned out to be. I hope they never get another dollar. But UNRWA has been revealed as an arm of Hamas. Did we know that before the war? We knew that. Everybody knew that. Everybody understood that the tunnels were being dug with aid money and aid supplies and aid concrete. Everybody understood that um, you can't get a job with UNRWA. UNRWA has 13,000 employees in Gaza. Not one of them can get that job if Hamas doesn't want them to. So it's not, UNRWA doesn't even have to be infiltrated by Hamas. We, we think it is, but it doesn't have to be. It's simply operating under a dictatorship that understands that this UNRWA money, $1.1, $1.2 billion a year, in, in an economy like Gaza's, that is a vast amount of money. That, that obviously the mafia that runs Gaza is going to make sure to control that spigot. I mean, how could it not? It's an insult to our intelligence ever to suggest that it isn't profoundly shaped and affected and infiltrated and controlled on the ground by Hamas. And UNRWA doesn't seriously argue it isn't. UNRWA has actually, we've seen videos of Hamas gunmen take UNRWA um, uh, aid trucks as they go into Gaza. And UNRWA's official response is, oh, they're not stealing the trucks. They're helping the distribution and protecting the trucks from theft. Well, you know, I, I, Habib, exactly. I'm not a dummy, and I followed this region pretty well. I always thought UNRWA, while perhaps paying off and paying a, a bit of, of, uh, of bribery to Hamas, that they were not going to take up arms against Israel. I had, I had a um, definitely... Uh, uh, shades on my eyes as to what they were, but they apparently were part of the killing spree, and that's different, right? That's when they've crossed the line from being uh, a useful idiots and accomplices to being terrorists, and they've done that. Let me say so. The small problem, and it is the small problem, is that some number of UNRWA people we have identified thirteen. We don't know if it isn't sixty or three hundred. We, we we don't yet. I don't think it's 300, but certainly we've identified 13. It might be much more. The small problem is that these people actually participated as members of Hamas in the actual massacre of October 7th, in the kidnapping, in preparing uh, places for, for the kidnapped people to go. Um, they were just part of the atrocities of October 7th. That's the small problem. The large problem is that UNRWA allows Hamas to be the irresponsible guerrilla group it wants to be while also being the government it, it, it wants to be at the same time. In other words, Hamas um, attacks and hides behind civilians. A lot of guerrilla groups have done that in history. But Hamas alone in the history of warfare 
is an irresponsible guerrilla group that hides behind civilians and also controls the territory and the government and the economy. And so it does it on a scale no one has ever done before in the history of warfare. And how can Hamas be a guerrilla group that bends an entire economy to building this underground network that is twice as large as the London tube system and never actually be responsible for feeding and clothing and inoculating and, do, and, and, and teaching its population that it is the government of? And the answer is UNRWA. The great and big and gigantic problem and crime of UNRWA is the thing that it does that is so good on the face of it, but in fact allows Hamas to use all of Gaza as a military base and never actually be responsible for Gaza and place two million Gazans in harm's way. And that's literally its strategy for war fighting because it's a guerrilla group, but it can do so with two million people because it doesn't have responsibility as a government. And the reason it doesn't have responsibility as a government is that UNRWA has replaced it as a government in Gaza. The when we come back from break... We're going to talk about the yeah. tunnels. UNRWA is done, and I, I believe they are finished forever. And, and it may be the beginning of the toppling of the U.N. I, I do think a lot of Americans' eyes are wide open in a way that they've never been before to things like the United Nations Relief Agency for Gaza, which is one of a kind, been around since 1948, got nothing to do with their, their bigger effort for refugees around the world. It is a mini-state within a state, within a terrorist state. And I think it's done after this. But Haviv will be right back. I'm going to talk to him off the air, then back on the air, then off the air. Don't go anywhere. It'll all be on the podcast later today. And I'll play portions of it that you don't hear on air. Don't go anywhere. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm talking with Haviv Redigur of the Times of Israel. Haviv, I've also read conflicting stories on the amount of the tunnel system that has been destroyed. I've seen 20 percent. I've seen 50 percent. Yesterday, I saw a story that they've begun to pump in seawater. I saw the same story a month ago. What is your understanding about the tunnel system and its capacity, its operability right now? The tunnel system is many different parts and pieces. A lot of them are interconnected. Some of them uh, are not. Uh, Under each town, under each village, um, under specific neighborhoods, sometimes there's a single tunnel that connects two different networks. So it's big, it's complex, it's based on how they understood the needs that they would have when an enemy, mainly the Israelis, come into Gaza, how they would fight them. And so it's, it's, a, it's a big, vast thing. Um, the official Israeli um, estimate is between 20 and 40 percent is destroyed. That's a big range, 20 and 40 percent. And it reflects yeah. the fact that since going in, they've discovered sections and areas and scale, uh, tunnels large enough to drive a car through. That, that the intelligence understood quite a bit about the tunnels, but never imagined that. And so we discovered just how much Hamas has built and how astonishingly large that project has been. Um, the seawater point is really very important because um, it's an engineering coup. It's actually a tremendous engineering success. We've managed to flood a small number of tunnels in ways that won't hit the aquifer, won't hurt the drinking water and will actually make those parts of the tunnels uninhabitable. It's the safest way for the Israelis to flood tunnels uh, that we've yet found, and they're looking for many more ways to do it. The point is, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be a long grind in Gaza with a a, a guerrilla war, you know, a a counterinsurgency. It's going to be painful. It's going to be frustrating, and it's still going to happen. We're going to come back and talk about that, but pause for a moment on the engineering. There is very little detail about that. What do we know about what the Israelis are doing and where they're doing it and how they're I know they have to protect the aquifer and they are doing so very, very carefully, no matter what the International Court of Justice says. 
But but where are they doing it, and what do you know about it? Very little. Um, we know that they have laid new pipes to enable it. We know they've had to choose areas to pump it in. We know they have to think about gradations. Obviously, water flows down. These tunnels are a complicated network of also, you know, they're, they're in three dimensions, right? It isn't just, you don't just create a two-dimensional map of how the tunnels work. They go up and down as well. Um, and so it's, it's this incredibly complex thing. The military has devoted special unit uh, with, you know, interdisciplinary from many, many different professions in the military, engineers and, and, and you know, specifically water engineers and explosive engineers and all these different kinds of uh, units. There are special operations to go in and get take over areas of tunnels that are useful for the experiments that they've conducted in flooding. And those have been special military operations on the ground with special units. And so it's been this incredibly complex um, project that they devoted a huge amount of resources to, because if they can um, at will flood any part of the tunnels they want, they have to some significant extent solve the Hamas problem. And yes. so the army is moving forward on this in a big way. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about time frames and about how long Americans ought to expect and what Israelis expect the conflict to go on. I'm saying we're going to be talking about this a year from now. Habib will be back here talking about this in a year from now. But we'll find out what he says after the break. Stand by, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm talking with Haviv Redigur. You can follow him on X at Haviv Redigur. You can also go to the Times of Israel. Haviv, I am preparing for this to go on for a long time, but the American political season has begun. Joe Biden clearly wants this to be over. And there are lots of headlines and head fakes. How long do you expect Israeli troops to be operating in Gaza? I mean... In in a, in a fantasy world in which everything goes well and and we get everything we want, we get our boys home. The Gazans get to start rebuilding as soon as possible. Six months. Uh, in a real world, it's going to be a year and more. I'm I'm thinking five years. My father was in the occupation army of Imperial Japan, and he was he only did eight months after the war, and then he was demobilized. But we were there. MacArthur was running it for five years really basically until the South Korean conflict. Is anyone thinking realistically about how long Israel is going to have to stay there and get shot at by guerrilla forces? I mean, yeah, yesterday the defense minister in public, um, in a public speech said um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a long time and uh, after Israel won't control civilian um, issues in Gaza, it won't control Gaza, rule Gaza in that sense. But it will have security control for a very long time. And in the, under that Israeli security control will be the rebuilding. And, and that's something that is pretty clear. And as you say, that could take two years, three years, four years. Um, the goal, I, you know, the goal, the um, aspiration is to, is to pull Israel out as quickly as possible. Hamas is gone. Um, moderate Arab world forces come in to not just rebuild, but de-radicalize. Hamas has run the education system for 17 years, and half of Gazans are under 18. And so half of Gazans literally were taught by Hamas. But those UNRWA schools are the majority of employees of UNRWA, and Hamas approves them, and the curriculum is in some importance, to, to a very important degree, set by Hamas. And so there is a process of de-radicalization that also has to happen in Gaza. Um, and rebuilding, obviously, and all of that. So, you know, the, the intensive war fighting will take months. The counterinsurgency, the low-level counterinsurgency, much longer. 
um, and the rebuilding process will still see some Israeli involvement. So I don't think five years is crazy. I hope that five years isn't what isn't a war, because that that would be something. No, more like Iraq and, and the United States. Now, the Philadelphia line, Egypt has objected to Israel taking it over formally, but they actually don't object, do they? They'd rather you ran that than them, don't they? Egypt's position is very complicated. They're desperate for Hamas to be destroyed. They're desperate not to be left holding the responsibility in the eyes of the Arab world for the humanitarian crisis. And so an Israeli push to the Philadelphia line itself, which is the Gaza-Egypt border, would would compromise the hundreds of thousands of, uh, of, of Palestinians, civilians now essentially f- who fled the war zones of Gaza and are basically trying to sit out the war in these safe zones. Those safe zones would become the battle zones. And so Egypt is very scared of that, wants Israel to understand that, um, and doesn't want to be seen with you know battles between Israelis and Hamas um, under the watchful gaze of Egyptian soldiers on the border who do nothing. It doesn't want that imagery. And so Egypt wants Hamas destroyed, absolutely, and is very scared of the damage to Egypt politically and diplomatically and internally, internally in, within Egyptian society. There's a lot of anger at Egypt and a lot of anger at Israel. And so all of those problems exactly make them play that complicated game of wanting Hamas destroyed but pretending to be against the Israeli war effort. Now, Aviv, I've read enough to know that that the Muslim Brotherhood is not going to be destroyed by this conflict and that Qutub's writings are not going to go away. When I hear people say that ideologies can't be destroyed, I think of Nazi Germany and Japanese imperialism. In fact, they can. Is it not possible to eradicate the Qutubism that is that branch, the fanatical Wahhabism? Is it not possible to eradicate that? It's such a good and critical question, and it's so hard to know how to even begin to think clearly about it. My sense, and it really is, it really is educated guess, more than, no more than that, is that Israel doesn't know how to do that. You use Douglas MacArthur in Japan as an example. Douglas MacArthur was basically the dictator in Japan. He arrested yes. journalists. He and Japan understood that it had been defeated. The radical militaristic. Uh, branch of Japanese politics and society understood that it had been defeated because of the nuclear explosions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, here we have a situation in which Israel cannot run Gaza the way the Americans ran Japan, uh, not for that length of time and not, not with that same kind of political structure. And also, Israel, doesn't really, Israel is too much the enemy to be something that teaches Gazans a different story. That is not, uh, Israeli Jews don't know how to, you know, de-radicalize a Sunni Arab population. The hope, and it's not just our hope, it's the hope of the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians, is that these regimes, these governments, these countries like the Saudi, Saudi Arabia itself de-radicalized Saudi Arabia. Right after 9-11, they were caught, you know, on their hind legs. They were very surprised. But then after the two bombings that followed in, on Saudi soil in, in 2003, the Saudi government said, all right, we've created a Frankenstein monster. We've been funding these radicals. They turned on them. They shut down Nagrasad. They arrested Iman. They, they de-radicalized their society. They might be able to come to Hopefully they will. Stay right there, Habib. we got to talk Israeli politics in our last segment, which I will replay for the radio audience. In the next hour, don't go anywhere. I'm Hugh Hewitt. You're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show.
I am back now with Aviv Rediger for our last segment. Aviv, I saved Israeli politics for last because uh, I don't understand it at all. It seems to me that that Netanyahu is widely disliked, but he also has a grip on four years in power that is not going to be dislodged because the far right's not going to do it and he knows how to play this game. But I also hear a lot of politics creeping into the podcast from TOI and the Hartman Institute and the other ones that I listen to. Can can Israel keep politics at bay long enough to at least get 80 percent of the fighting done? No, that was an easy question. Um, I say that tragically, um, but uh, I mean, Likud's campaign is back. The, the Twitter campaign accounts are back. Uh, Netanyahu is actively talking uh, to political factions, negotiating, campaigning. The campaign is in every way except literally funding an actual campaign apparatus, which they're almost starting to do. Uh, the campaign to uh, survive is back. Uh, Netanyahu has been talking a lot about not having a Palestinian state. That is not mainly meant for American audiences or European audiences. That's mainly meant for the far right. Netanyahu has been warning for the last three, four weeks, um, the far right factions that blame him for October 7th, right? Because he, he was the prime minister and it was his Gaza policy that brought October 7th. And so they, the, if you're, you know, the religious Zionist party or the Osmayudit party or those, those parties to Likud's right, you don't see a big difference between Netanyahu and the center left. And they've been saying that, um, even though their coalition partners have been saying that. I mean, Netanyahu's response is, I'm the only thing preventing a Palestinian state the day after because the Biden administration, the Europeans, are allies, the people helping us fight Hamas. Once we destroy Hamas, they're going to say, now give us a Palestinian state and I'm going to prevent it. Netanyahu isn't talking about that because it's good for Israel right now to talk about that. It is, he isn't talking about that because he's actually, because I don't know what, the, the, the central left uh, or the centrist leader, Benny Gantz, is actually going to establish a Palestinian state. He's not. Nobody knows what Palestinian could establish a Palestinian state in the next 10 years. He's talking about it as part of that campaign. So I think not only have, have politics returned, but I think politics have begun in some, to some extent still in the margins, but nevertheless to some extent to shape the war effort. Has everyone retreated to their partisan corner? Now, I haven't heard it very often. Uh, your your host of uh, the Times of Israel avoids it. Occasionally, one of the guests will mention Netanyahu and the contempt in their voice is complete. And I think that is very dangerous for the TOI podcast because you don't want to lose your audience. It's got to be enormous. It's a it's a straight up news show. Does every Israeli talk politics on every corner about how do we get rid of Netanyahu or how do we save Netanyahu? We have pretty good polls, and no matter how you ask the question, and no matter which direction you come from, they tell the same story. Um, one poll we said, do, not it wasn't the Times of Israel poll, but it was a significant poll by a significant media outlet. Do you want Netanyahu to survive, to be the prime minister who is still in power after the war is over, after everything's over? 28% said yes. That's not great for Netanyahu. We also have a, um, we have a, um, a poll about public trust where a pollster asked, uh, they took the four top leaders of Israel and they said, do you believe this person is primarily focused on the war or primarily focused on politicking? Um, Defense Minister Gallant is the most trusted man in Israel right now. He got 90-10. 90% say he's working on the war, 10% politicking. Benny Gantz from the opposition came into the government to stabilize the government, 80-20. Very good numbers. Netanyahu, 65-35 the other way. 65 say he's politicking. 35 say he's primarily focused on the war. So the distrust uh, of Netanyahu is profound. I, I have to tell you, 
um, conservatives feel betrayed by him to a profound extent within Israel. In the hierarchy of command on October 8th, on October 7th, every single person in that hierarchy has taken responsibility except Benjamin Netanyahu. I've noted that. I've noted that. Chief of Staff of the Army, the head of the Southern Coast. I have seen a 26-year-old captain on TV asked if asked about that and saying i take this i some of his soldiers were killed in october so it's my fault he said only benjamin Netanyahu didn't and that's so is there a way where the left is there a way where Likud splits gallant says i'm going to bring down the government i'm going to run as a new party and i'm going to take as many Likud members as possible and we're going to force elections is that what happens I don't know. We have polls right now that show uh, Netanyahu losing seats to the center, quite a few, and also losing seats to the far right, quite a few. And they could shrinking by almost half. There are those are his worst polls. He has better polls than that. But the worst polls have in the past come true once in a while. And, and so there's a deep, deep distrust in his constituency. Is that enough to split the party in two? Honestly, I, I don't know. I am absolutely convinced that when he runs, he, he hasn't won an election poll in a year. He really is not positioned to win this thing. And he's going to try and stick it out until the spring of 2025 in the hope that he can. Well, yeah, that, that makes the most sense to me is that the war goes on. You don't hold an election in a war and that he wa- he wages war to win, not to do a deal because it's the only way he survives and because it's in the best interest of Israel. But I still see at some point Gallant, who is very impressive, saying, I'm I am done with you. And Likudniks come with me. Is, is that discussed openly? I think it would. I, I haven't seen it discussed openly. He is the leader. Gallant is the lead is that probably at this moment, which, again, it's a war. He's the defense minister. Maybe that's why. But at this moment, he is the top choice for replacing Netanyahu uh, in the sort of chatter among the Likud ranks. Um, does that mean a rebellion? I, I don't know. A lot of Likud, huge numbers of Likud want Netanyahu gone already. They're just, it's, it's gotten to the point where he, he, it's Thatcher in her final year. It's, it's the, the cost of having him far outweighs the benefit. Um, but Likud has a culture of loyalty to the leader that is astonishing and, and, and has been a huge advantage for Likud over the decades. Likud has had exactly four leaders since 1948. And so if it does oust Netanyahu, that'll be the first time uh, that the party does that. I did not realize that. They've had four leaders, one of whom was Begin, another was Shamir. Begin, Shamir, Sharon, and Netanyahu. Oh, my gosh. That is not a great deep bench, is it? Um, uh, Habib, I do not want to abuse your time by the side of the road. Could I keep you for one more segment? Sure. Okay, thank you very much. Stand by. I'll be right back. America, don't go anywhere. When I come back with Aviv Rediger on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, Glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio. As you know, for the last half hour, I've been talking with Aviv Rediger of The Times of Israel. I'm also joined by Mary Catherine Ham of Getting Hammered Podcast, and you see her on TV as well. Good morning, Mary Catherine. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm talking with Haviv, and I and I wanted to see if you had questions after my last question for him. Haviv, in terms of when it all falls apart, in terms of the politics of Israel, when they can't put off elections anymore, when do you expect that to be? Great question. Technically, uh, it could take a year. Um, they have to pass a budget um, in a year. There isn't any specific thing that would fail Netanyahu um, except the right-wing parties literally deciding to topple him. 
that's why he's on the Palestinian state campaign, because he's telling them, if I fall, there'll be a Palestinian state within a year and you'll have a you know ideological catastrophe. And so don't leave me, even if you blame me for October 7, even if you think I'm terrible, leaving me will cost you. And so the far right would be actually the deciding factor. Um, the only other possibility is protests. We have seen some limited protests of hostage families. We have not yet seen the mass protests of all the tens of thousands of Israeli families of victims of October 7th. And when that begins, if that begins, uh, 86,000 Israelis haven't been home in 100 days because they're evacuated from northern towns and villages as everyone waits for the Lebanon war. If those people who are displaced, the people who are or the family members of victims start marching in the streets, that's hundreds of thousands, and that could just force the government to, re- to resign anyway. So the, the, the um, key point there, those will, developments you said is as everybody waits for the Hezbollah war, Mary Catherine Ham, we have we cannot find the Teddy Roosevelt or the Carl Vinson on our map this morning. Uh, the United Kingdom is sending an aircraft carrier to the Red Sea. We've already got the Dwight Eisenhower in the region. Do you expect a regional war, Mary Catherine? I mean, it's feeling more and more like that. What concerns me is that the way that you prevent regional wars is that you react strongly at the smallest uh, provocation from Iranian-backed countries, and we have decided not to do that. Uh, we decided long ago after the Afghanistan withdrawal that, that we were going to cede much of this ground and much of our power, uh, and I think that becomes very dangerous. I know the left will tell you all day long that strength will cause the world war, and yet the Soleimani strike did not, or moving the embassy to Jerusalem did not. It turns out that weakness causes some of these problems. Do you expect a regional war? By that I mean including people other than the IDF in the combatant status. In the immediate term, no. Um, Iran has shown us um, that... I, I tend to agree with uh, what Mary just said, that you know strength does deter in the Middle East. Uh, the Middle East is not Western Europe. It works differently. It has different cultures. It also has different politics and just different ways of interacting. Um, it, the very fact that Iran and Hezbollah have done everything they could while pretending to fight Israel, actually sitting out the Gaza war, tells us, I think, that some of that is, is fear of America. Even in America, that won't use its strength is, is immensely strong. And so... Um, uh, we have seen that there's that care and concern. At the same time, I have to tell you, uh, everybody on the ground expects a larger war in Lebanon soon. Not, not only are 86,000 Israelis have left their homes on that border, 100,000 Lebanese on the other side have also left their homes. Those are mostly empty villages in South Lebanon right now. And so the the chances of the war at least expanding to Lebanon, and from there, who knows, uh, are quite high. Mary Catherine, what do you think, Americans expect out of this conflict? Do they, are they paying attention in the way they were on 10-8? Or are they, they have they backburnered it? And although three American soldiers got killed by an Iranian drone, and I blame Iran for that, they're not ready to go to war. I really don't have my finger on this pulse yet. What do you think, Mary Catherine? I, I'm unsure. I think some people care. I think obviously the loss of American uh, service people uh, matters a lot and makes people pay more attention. Do I think that people are uh, interested in more? Obviously, that's something people are clamoring for. However, I think the sort of uh, bellicosity occasionally of the Trump administration was fine with people, right? It wasn't nation building, it wasn't boots on the ground, but it was a strong response 
uh, to provocations, and that was okay with voters. I wonder if I could ask, please, is Netanyahu correct that without him uh, in this particular government, that there would be a move toward a Palestinian state? Is there actually appetite for that and will to do that in Israel? Habib? Absolutely not. Uh, Absolutely not. There's First of all, yeah. the, the opposition is made up mostly of people who have woken up on October 7th to the understanding that, that, that until Palestinian society is profoundly de-radicalized, uh, the idea of pulling out of the West Bank and shrinking Israel down to nine miles wide at the middle while Hamas controls the highlands, which Hamas right now would win an election in the West Bank, is, is so impossible to imagine that, uh, no, Gantz and Lafayette and the people who potentially could be prime ministers, um, could defeat Likud in an election, absolutely can't, even if they wanted to, and I don't think they want to, even if they wanted to, couldn't deliver a Palestinian state right now. And that's what makes it all harm to Israel, positioning it that way, while it, it, it raises the cost to Biden of helping us by talking that way about a Palestinian state, while not actually securing us from any threat that could be down the road. That's my view, at least. So, Aviv, uh, to follow up on that, if nobody wants it, how does Netanyahu campaign on it? If no one is actually saying, I'm going to deliver, I mean, Israeli voters are like American voters. They know what's going on. How long does the ruse last? I think it's a desperate Hail Mary on his part because of the polls, because of what everyone knows. Everyone is reading the polls everywhere in the world. Um, he gathered together the Likud Knesset faction, the members of Knesset of his party, um, about a month ago in a room, in a closed-door room, which is why we know everything that happened there. If you want everything to leak, you close the doors. If the doors are ah. open, nobody cares what happened. <laughs> but so we gathered them together and sent to them what is basically his political strategy. He said, Gantz will give Biden that thing. The Biden administration will come to Israel and it will say, we just paid a lot of political capital for you. We have a rebellion on our left flank. Give us that Palestinian horizon. Give us something where we can go back to the Democratic Party and say this was good for Palestinians in the long term. And Gantz won't stand up to that pressure, and I will. Mary Catherine, I have a domestic political question for you. I think the Jewish vote in the United States and the vote of the Friends of Israel from people like me who are Catholic and support Israel and people like you who are evangelical and support Israel, I think this is going to realign American politics because Biden is walking back support for Israel. Do you see that, Mary Catherine? Uh, I don't want to set my hopes too high for such a thing because I feel like it can be fool's gold often. However, uh, I have heard certainly anecdotally, I don't, I haven't enough at polling, but anecdotally among friends, particularly Jewish friends, wouldn't necessarily uh, normally consider voting either way. They're certainly disillusioned in a way that I have not heard before in the past. Now, does that last through 2024? I don't know, but there's certainly... There's so much discomfort in that coalition for a Jewish voter who thinks, well, I was your ally for so long on so many issues. I would think the demand for allyship was so high and I did so much and I was so vocal and yet here we are and I'm suddenly the enemy. And that is a very uncomfortable feeling in your your voting coalition. So I'm going to let Haviv go after this question. Mary Catherine, ask you if you can stay one more segment. Haviv, yesterday the Post ran a story, or the New York Times, on black pastors turning on Israel and suggesting that Jews in America are not on the same page as they are. Have you, do, do Israelis, are they, do they feel obliged to support Biden even though they, they know he's undercutting them, or do they really believe he's with them? 
I'm going to answer not the Israeli elite. The political elites have strong views, and they're also partisan, and some connect more to the Republicans, and some. But, but I'll tell you what ordinary Israelis think. When President Obama was elected the first time, he had huge favorability in Israel, hitting 70%, somewhere around there. And when President Trump was elected for the first time, he had huge favorability in Israel, 70% approval. Israelis don't entirely under, you know, we speak Hebrew amongst ourselves. We're a little bit of a, there's a Freudian slip. We're a little bit of a parochial country speaking an obscure language, right? We don't entirely understand America's culture wars. We love America. We love America because we know better than most what Pax Americana has meant, the free world and the prosperous world that America built for everyone in the world after World War II. That's the thing that Israelis feel connected to. And so President Biden will, until, unless he makes something that does something that Israelis feel is genuinely against them, which happened a couple of times in the Obama administration, will enjoy tremendous support and love. And so will any Republican president. It's, it's about America, not so much about the specific political faction in America. Haviv, I want to thank you for spending a half hour with me. I'm going to ask Mary Catherine if she can't stick around to comment a little bit more on American domestic politics. Uh, particularly that Kamala Harris is going to be our next president comment that Nikki Haley made yesterday. But Aviv, thank you. I want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is, I, but, but we don't... They, I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And um, that is a, and it's healthy, it's wise, it's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's 864-644-1900. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Mary Catherine Ham of Getting Hammered Podcast and Real Clear Politics fame continues. Mary Catherine, thank you for your patience. That was a curveball. I don't get Haviv Rediger very often. Do you read him much? Uh, I read the Times of Israel, uh, and it's a pleasure to listen to him talk about things that he knows uh, backwards and forwards. Yeah, I, I, I just I love getting someone who's dispassionate and is actually a journalist. He's a real journalist. Who would you compare him to in the United States, by the way? In terms of stature, it's, believability it's so on both sides of the see, aisle. Who? Yeah, I was going to say, it's so rare that I see passionate reporting uh, these days. I actually, there was one piece the other day that I noticed. It was in, when the AP reported on uh, how this law in 
New York had never been used against anyone but Trump for a punishment and there had been no victims of crime. And I thought, that's actual reporting that, that's... coming from the AP. It's a strange moment. There was actual reporting this morning in the New York Times about uh, immigration and Biden. But it takes forever for Michael Shear and his colleagues to come to the conclusion that Biden has screwed this up so royally that there's no way to fix it with Joe Biden. Have you had a chance to read that yet? I have not read this yet. When you read that, you'll be amazed. They come down to the bottom line. Now he's trying to keep immigration negotiations alive because it's totally collapsed. I think that deal is dead, Mary Catherine. Before I go to your your column in Real Clear Politics, what do you think? the Republicans are going to do on the immigration border security deal. So I don't see a way that that happens in the House, period. So I don't, I, even if more things are revealed, even if you could make the argument that you're making incremental progress on border control of some kind, I think the trust is broken, particularly on this issue, so much uh, that it's hard to sell anything. It's particularly hard to sell to a house with it maybe a one vote majority. I mean, that is seems nearly impossible to me. Do you agree with me that the necessary, though not sufficient, ingredient in a successful deal would be a 900 mile wall, the construction details of which are specified, the map is laid out, and the authorized, notwithstanding any other law, language is used? Would that bring Republicans around? Because I'm not going for anything that doesn't build the wall. I'm done with everything else. And, and I'm, a, I'm an immigration moderate. You know that. I'm a wet on this. What do you think? They've, they've turned us all into hawks. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They have. Um, no, I, I, I agree that because the trust has been broken on this issue so many times, how many pieces of legislation are going to increase security? How many pieces of legislation over the years have said that they're fixing these things, right? The Biden administration, of course, has the power to change all the things for the worse after they took office, governing opposition to Trump uh, administration policies unwisely. But they won't do that. So I think you need something physical and specific to even have a chance at buying trust past something. And I guess that the Republicans gave that away on day one because the Democrats don't like the symbolism of the wall because it's Trump's wall, even though it goes back to the Secure Border Fence Act of 2006 was the first lie. And you just know that we've been lied to many times about the wall. I just don't think anyone's going to believe it until it's built. What did you write for Real Clear Politics, Mary Catherine? So I wrote about, you know, the infamous AB5 in California, which uh, essentially outlawed freelance and independent contracting work in the Golden State and hurt a bunch of people and people running from California. Uh, the Biden administration, in its great wisdom, in this economy, has decided to pass a 339-page Department of Labor rule that imposes basically the same structure on freelance and independent work across the nation. I was uh, unaware and- of this. You mean you can't do yes, the gig is, economy? Uh, the, They're trying to kill the gig economy with one rule? Yes. Their wish is to turn all of the gig economy people into full-time workers and then unionize them. The problem, of course, is when you raise the cost of labor, you get less employment, which is what happened in California. And you, you know what the real the minimum right wage is, Mary Catherine? It's zero. Thomas Sowell wrote that years ago. The real minimum wage is zero because you don't hire people at $25 an hour. You just don't. Exactly. And this, this rule is so complicated. 
And most businesses are going to look at it and go, I have no idea how to deal with this. Maybe I just won't hire independent contractors. That'll, of course, have cascading effects for so many people who choose to work as independent contractors for their families, for themselves. Uh, and Kevin Kiley is working on reverse it for the Congressional Review Act. Uh, Kevin knows what he's doing. I got a quick question. What were you paid for? What was your wage for your first job, Mary Catherine, not including babysitting? Uh, 10 50 an hour as a reporter. 10.50? Nah, you're rolling in down. No wonder you're so well dressed. <laughs> no one pays a reporter 10.50 an hour. Mary Catherine Ham, follow her on Twitter at MK Hammer. Listen to Getting Hammered with Vic Matt. This is Dennis Prager. I am excited to announce the all-new PragerTopia Plus. You can listen to my show whenever it's convenient for you, all commercial-free and all on demand. Now with Prager Plus, search topics, guests, and segments all the way back to 2010. And now a truly exciting new benefit, my monthly online video get-together for PragerTopia Plus members only. This is where for an hour each month, PragerTopia Plus members get an exclusive chance to ask me anything. That's right, anything. It's on video. I'll be talking to you and answering your questions. We may even have a special guest every now and then. I've never done this. Submit your questions for me at PragerTopia.com. This is only available to PragerTopia Plus members. This is our chance to connect like never before. Go to PragerTopia.com or click the banner at DennisPrager.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.